0: Welcome to the Archimedes Podcast, the evidence-based podcast from the Archives of Diseases of Childhood that every month or so brings you clinical cases that have tested the thinking process of paediatricians and child health people around the world, and what they've done is turn it into a very structured clinical question, we go away and look for the research evidence to answer that question, and go on from there to try to appraise that evidence, see how good it is and how likely to be true. Then bring that all together in a conclusion that can be used in clinical practice. This month we have an interview with the authors of one of the Archimedes clinical questions and a summary of a very interesting paper about the use of lumbar puncture when you've got a child with suspected meningitis, but not up front, but instead after a couple of days. Now the authors are both from Birmingham Children's Hospital, they are Dr Marika and Dr Wakogne. Who start with the scenario of a four-week-old baby who attends their ED with frank sepsis, and is started on broad-spectrum antibiotics with cefotaxime and amoxicillin. A couple of days later, when clinically stable and reasonable, a lumbar puncture was undertaken that showed about 45 white cells, few red cells. Because of the blood staining of that sample, the protein count was unavailable. And when they looked at those white cells in detail, they were. neutrophils. Gram stain was negative, culture was negative, blood cultures were negative, and the PCRs that were sent on the CSF for meningococcal and pneumococcal bacteria were also negative. However, the gang decided that given the presentation and the way that there were white cells in the CSF, they thought that they should be treated as if this was a meningitis proven case and treated with a prolonged course of IV antibiotics. Now, this scenario raises a number of different issues. You could ask how can we get LPs better so we've got less chance of getting red cells in it. You could ask what's the ideal course of antibiotics for a child with meningitis who's only four weeks old and has negative cultures and negative PCR so we're not quite sure what organism we're dealing with. But the question that they took to deal with was the one of in Children and adolescents with presumed meningitis, how does antibiotic pretreatment compared with no antibiotic pretreatment affect the diagnostic value of the cerebrospinal fluid examination? Off they went into the literature searching Medline and MBase with an extensive search strategy that brought back 253 articles from Medline and 295 from MBase. Going through all of those, four of them were relevant and they were brought from a series of places. Two of them were U.S., one was New Zealand, and one was from Nepal. They were all reasonably sized. The smallest was 48 children from New Zealand who all had proven meningococcal meningitis, but the others were 114 from the Nepalese study, 128 from one of the U.S. studies, and 245 from the other U.S. study. These were all retrospective cohorts, nobody had set up an extensive study over the course of years and years to look at meningitis cases and their CSF analysis. But when you think about the issues of retrospective studies, of case missing and so on, if you've got a lab system that catches CSFs and can be identified, then you can probably get hold of nearly all the CSFs that were taken and appraised. Given that these kids had meningitis, it's also fairly likely that they'll be hanging around the system in the notes department as well, and so there may be little missed notes in total. Obviously within those notes you may be looking for subtle differences and you couldn't track down all the very fine clinical details, but largely speaking there's probably a little error caused by missing data for these types of studies. What they've all done is try to look at what's the difference between some of the children that were treated with antibiotics prior to LP and some of the children that weren't treated with antibiotics prior to LP. They all demonstrate quite clearly that the CSF culture rate is much lower when you've been treated treated with antibiotics, but it's not negative in all cases, and this is a little bit surprising to me. The ones that look particularly at meningococcal disease shows that they did become negative and really very quickly within the first few hours. Two of the studies looked in detail at the other parameters, particularly the white cell count and the CSF and glucose levels. What they showed was that the white cell count, over the course of two to three days, didn't really change between those that were pretreated treated and those that had not been pre-treated with antibiotics. There was some debate as to whether the protein really was altered or not, one study finding no significant difference, and another finding that the CSF protein was slightly lower. This might just be a chance variation finding, of course, because we have only got two studies and we've got relatively small numbers in each of those groups. We can't be certain which of those two things is true. Pulling all of this information together concluded was, very reasonably, that you should do lumbar punctures and try very hard not to get red cells in it, because when you get red cells in it, then you're up your understanding of what are the white cells that are going on and what is the CSF glucose and protein and so it becomes very very difficult to rule out bacterial meningitis. They also conclude that taking the CSF samples after pretreatment may still give very useful results mainly on the basis of the white cell count but the culture is still a reasonable thing to do alongside doing PCRs for the particular organisms that are most likely in this era of now HIB and pneumococcal vaccination being extensively used, this rate of meningitis is actually quite a lot lower. But lot lower doesn't mean absent and it still needs treating. Clearly, there are still many questions to be answered about the optimal treatment of meningitis, the optimal detection of meningitis, and the optimal follow-up of meningitis in small children, middle-sized children, and quite large children. But those will be for other Archimedes's, perhaps one that you could do. Thank you, Dr. Alison Lowe, for joining us for the Archimedes podcast. I Thank you very work. much for having me. You're, you're very welcome. I understand you work at Sheffield Children's. That's right. And can you tell us a little bit about your Archimedes connected to varicella zoster infection and the use of non-steroidals?
1: Well, I think there's always been a question over whether the use of non-steroidals is safe in children with varicella. And it's something that I've come across a few times as a pediatrician with some of my seniors saying, oh, yes, it's okay to use. Or some people saying, no, we never use it. So I thought it would be a good question to look up. So I used a structured clinical question um, and my population was children with varicella. Mm-hmm. Um, and the exposure of interest was non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. I know in particular in the pediatric population, we see ibuprofen used, but I looked at all non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Mm-hmm. And the outcome I was looking at was infectious complications of varicella. But in particular, I was more interested in looking at um, infectious complications of the skin and soft tissue. So probably what we've, most of us have heard of is the complication of necrotizing fasciitis after varicella infection.
0: Yes, in fact, saying that um, reminds me of a particularly unpleasant case on paediatric intensive care um, that I dealt with, with a a kid with necrotizing fasciitis and compartment syndrome. It was, uh, yeah, really, really striking. So that sort of thing, I guess you would do anything you can to try and reduce it happening.
1: Right. And I think many of us have seen or been exposed to similar cases. And the question is whether the use of ibuprofen or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs contributes to the development of that complication of varicella.
0: Uh-huh. Uh, and where did you go to try and find the evidence that would uh, answer this question
1: for you? I looked on Medline. Um, so I did a Medline search term, a Medline search, and I looked at the term varicella and it maps automatically to chickenpox. So the term mm-hmm. chickenpox was included in that search. And then I looked at any combination of words I could look at to try to catch the NSAID use. So it was NSAID or nonsteroidal anti-inflammatory drug or ibuprofen. Um, at that point, I had 64 studies that came up. Um, so I looked through all 64 studies. I thought of including search terms for um, infectious complications of the skin, but there are dozens of search terms. I um, mean, you can even see in the studies that I found, some of them looked at skin and soft tissue infections, some of them looked at the term necrotizing fasciitis, necrotizing soft tissue infection, cellulitis, and I already only had 64 to look through. So I decided just to look through those 64 instead of adding in a search term about infectious complications.
0: I think that's a really good point that if you've already got things sort of cut down to a reasonable size, then trying to add in extra search terms and extra filters isn't going to make it any bigger, but it might throw out things that otherwise you would have been able to see. Thank you for pointing that out.
1: Yes. And in this case, it would have thrown out some studies that were useful. So I found five in the end.
0: Uh huh. And can you give us an overview of those five and, and maybe pick out where, if, if there is a, a clear winner, what you think the best study was and the particular issues that still remain, even if you've got a good quality study?
1: Sure. So, of the five studies, all of them are fairly old. The most recent is nine years old from 2008, and the oldest one is from 1997. Three of them were American, one was from France, and there's only one that has come from the UK. Most of the studies were case control studies, which makes sense because we're looking for um, a fairly rare outcome. And in fact, a lot of them were nested case control studies, um, and that's where all of the patients they were looking at had varicella, Um, and then the cases had varicella with this infectious skin complication, and the controls in all but one study had varicella without an infectious skin complication. So of the five studies, all but one showed a statistically significant effect. Um, So a statistically significant concern that ibuprofen is associated, or that non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs are associated with infectious complications of varicella. However, one thing that's very difficult in this case is to determine whether this relationship is causal or not. So for example, the most recent study, this is the one from 2008 in France, Um, they looked at 159 children who had infectious complications of varicella requiring admission to hospital um, and how many of them had had NSAIDs. Um, They had found an odds ratio of Mm. 4.8. So fairly significant, right? Mm -hmm. But then in the questionnaire that the pediatricians completed with those patients, they asked if they had had NSAIDs and they didn't ask whether that was after they started developing signs of their secondary skin and soft tissue infection.
0: Ah, uh, so what we've got is a situation where the two things are associated, but it's very difficult to pick out whether it's sick patients that are more likely to be given the NSAIDs and and that it's a, a marker that they're developing a soft tissue infection or whether the non-steroidals are coming prior to the development of the severe infections and, and are somehow making it more likely to happen.
1: Exactly. So there are a couple of different things that could be in that could be influencing this one is that children who have more severe chicken pox and therefore have higher fevers are more likely to be treated with NSAIDs by their parents um, are ones who are at risk of developing skin soft tissue infections or the other is that the ibuprofen is being used to treat a fever or pain or a general appearance of being unwell that is caused by the onset of a skin and soft tissue infection in another study one of the American ones they had nine patients who had um, who were exposed to ibuprofen and seven of those were exposed to ibuprofen after the onset of um, these symptoms of skin and soft tissue infection.
0: I see. Um, so so not only is it sort of a theoretical thing, but there are data within these studies that you found that suggest that this is a, a, a real issue as to determine whether or not it's a causative or a caused by uh, issue between chickenpox and these severe soft tissue infections.
1: Right. So it's very easy to say that there is an association between the use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs and developing skin infections from varicella. But what we don't know is in what direction that association goes. There's one study I'd like to talk about a little bit more that looked into that, though. So this is the one by Lesko et al. from 2001. It's an American study. And they uh, got patients from pediatric units um, all throughout the United States. And they found 52 cases of people who had infectious complications of varicella. They were both looking at necrotizing soft tissue infections or invasive group A strep- sepsis, for example. Now, they were very careful with the timing of uh, assessing the timing of when the ibuprofen was given. I'm using ibuprofen and nonsteroidal anti inflammatory interchangeably. Hmm. Um, So they developed what they called was an index hour of the timing of onset of infectious complications. So for example, they had very strict criteria, fever more than four days after onset of varicella in a child who had been afebrile for 24 hours. They would define that as the index hour of complication, or also if there were local signs like redness. And they had a set of four criteria like that that were very strict. They defined the index hour of the onset of the sepsis, or skin and soft tissue infection, and they included um, in their assessment people who had had NSAID exposure in the preceding seven days, but up to 12 hours before the complication started. So in that case, we wouldn't be picking up people who had had ibuprofen to treat the first signs of an infectious complication. Um, so this study... I think it was very well done from this point of view. I think it was quite beautifully designed, actually. And their overall main result was statistically significant. So they found that for the compound outcome of necrotizing soft tissue infection or invasive group A strep infection, the odds ratio for NSAID exposure was 3.9 with a confidence interval of 1.3 to 12. So a moderate sized confidence interval, statistically significant, the whole thing. Now, so you would say from this, great, now we know the answer. Let's not use ibuprofen in varicella. Easy. However, they've done even more analyses. When they narrowed it down, this did not apply to patients who just had the skin and soft tissue infection. Um, So that odds ratio was 1.3. It only applied to patients who had the invasive group A strep. And then they did more sub-analyses. And they said this only applied to patients who had invasive group A strep who had ibuprofen in combination with acetaminophen, which is paracetamol. Mm Their conclusion from this study is that they think ibuprofen is safe to use in varicella and their unexpected statistically significant result is probably because of unknown variables or confounders. And I think this study is a really well-designed study that in many ways brings more questions than it answers because it was well-designed and it had a statistically significant result that then in sub-analysis just doesn't quite follow through.
0: So this study design can't exclude that it's the kids with the more severe varicella disease who have a, a more slowly evolving picture and so at greater risk of having these things happen. And therefore, those are the kids that got the greater levels of uh, analgesic and antipyretics. But what it can do is exclude the idea that the nonsteroidals are treating the active soft tissue infection prior to it being diagnosed.
1: Yes, that's absolutely right. It would look at one of it addresses one of those two scenarios.
0: So, putting this very complicated mash of evidence and difficulty together, what do you think yeah. the conclusion should be uh, for clinicians, sort of working uh, well in hospital in the first instance, but but also for people that are maybe parents or aunties advising on children that aren't unwell enough to be in hospital.
1: Well, I can give you one easy conclusion. And that is that there is an association. So whether this association Mm -hmm. is causal or not is more tricky, but we know there's an association. So if you're a parent or a doctor, and you're thinking about a child who's been unwell enough with their chicken pox to have required ibuprofen, then that already should be sending alarm bells going that maybe this child is already developing or is at risk of developing an infectious complication. Now, the more difficult bit of this is saying whether you can advise a parent to give ibuprofen to their child with varicella who's unwell. And I would say there is no very clear evidence that NSAID exposure causes infectious complications of varicella. And so you could feasibly, cautiously allow a parent to give their child ibuprofen. However, there's also no clear evidence that it's safe. So I suppose it depends on your own personal tolerance of risk. For myself, I think I will continue to avoid giving giving ibuprofen in children with varicella until more concrete evidence is produced.
0: Thank you very much, Alison. I think I take that evidence and I would be more on the other line, watching carefully but happily splashing the proofing around in order to cause Myself less hassle um, with small children with chickenpox. Um, but, like you say, there isn't really a clear answer from that evidence, is there?
1: No, not yet. And I think if it were a clinically important enough question, a randomized control trial could be justified.
0: That's an, an excellent point. So, thank you very, very much for giving up your time for this interview. It's always good to have authors of Archimedes on. Can I just ask you if somebody out there is listening? Is it worth trying to do an Archimedes? Is it a a fair thing to spend your fun time outside of work looking at?
1: It absolutely is. Um it was a, it was a lot of work, but I found it rewarding. I can't say that if I had a clinical question that I needed to answer On award round or something in the future i would go right ahead and do a whole archimedes but going through this process i think will make it a lot easier and faster for me to do smaller evidence searches in a more everyday type capacity
0: thank you very much dr Lowe, and for all of those listening uh, take advice and have a crack at it if you want please feel free (laughs) to email us at the archives and contact us via the buttons on the website so for this month thank you very much for listening to the archimedes podcast